This is section 12 of The $30,000 Bequest and Other Stories by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Was it Heaven or Hell? By Mark Twain. Chapter 1 and Chapter 2. Chapter 1. You told a lie? You confess it? You actually confess it? You told a lie? End of chapter 1. Chapter 2. The family consisted of four persons, Margaret Lester, widow, aged thirty-six, Helen Lester, her daughter, aged sixteen, Mrs. Lester's maiden aunts, Hannah and Hester Gray, twins, aged sixty-seven. Waking and sleeping, the three women spent their days and nights in adoring the young girl, in watching the movements of her sweet spirit in the mirror of her face in refreshing their souls with the vision of her bloom and beauty in listening to the music of her voice in gratefully recognizing how rich and fair for them was the world with this presence in it in shuddering to think how desolate it would be with this light gone out of it by nature and inside the aged aunts were utterly dear and lovable and good but in the matter of morals and conduct their training had been so uncompromisingly strict that it had made them exteriorly austere not to say stern their influence was effective in the house so effective that the mother and the daughter conformed to its moral and religious requirements cheerfully contentedly happily unquestionably to do this was become second nature to them and so in this peaceful heaven there were no clashings no irritations no fault-findings no heart-burnings in it a lie had no place in it a lie was unthinkable in it speech was restricted to absolute truth iron-bound truth implacable and uncompromising truth let the resulting consequences be what they might at last one day under stress of circumstances the darling of the house sullied her lips with a lie and confessed it with tears and self-upbraidings there are not any words that can paint the consternation of the aunts it was as if the sky had crumpled up and collapsed and the earth had tumbled to ruin with a crash they sat side by side white and stern gazing speechless upon the culprit who was on her knees before them with her face buried first in one lap and then the other moaning and sobbing and appealing for sympathy and forgiveness and getting no response humbly kissing the hand of the one then of the other only to see it withdrawn as suffering defilement by those soiled lips twice at intervals aunt hester said in frozen amazement you told a lie twice at intervals aunt hannah followed with the muttered and amazed ejaculation you confess it you actually confess it you told a lie it was all they could say the situation was new unheard of incredible they could not understand it they did not know how to take hold of it it approximately paralyzed speech at length it was decided that the erring child must be taken to her mother who was ill and who ought to know what had happened. Helen begged, besought, 
implored that she might be spared this further disgrace, and that her mother might be spared the grief and pain of it. But this could not be. Duty required this sacrifice. Duty takes precedence of all things. Nothing can absolve one from a duty. With a duty, no compromise is possible. Helen still begged, and said the sin was her own. Her mother had had no hand in it. Why must she be made to suffer for it? But the aunts were obdurate in their righteousness, and said the law that visited the sins of the parent upon the child was by all right and reason reversible, and therefore it was but just that the innocent mother of a sinning child should suffer her rightful share of the grief and pain and shame which were the allotted wages of the sin. The three moved toward the sick-room. At this time the doctor was approaching the house. He was still a good distance away, however. He was a good doctor and a good man, and he had a good heart, but one had to know him a year to get over hating him, two years to learn to endure him, three to learn to like him, and four or five to learn to love him. It was a slow and trying education, but it paid. He was of great stature. He had a leonine head, a leonine face, a rough voice, and an eye which was sometimes a pirate's and sometimes a woman's, according to the mood. He knew nothing about etiquette, and cared nothing about it. In speech, manner, carriage, and conduct he was the reverse of conventional. He was frank, to the limit. He had opinions on all subjects. They were always on tap and ready for delivery, and he cared not a farthing whether his listener liked them or didn't. Whom he loved, he loved, and manifested it. Whom he didn't love, he hated, and published it from the housetops. In his young days he had been a sailor, and the salt airs of all the seas blew from him yet. He was a sturdy and loyal Christian, and believed he was the best one in the land, and the only one whose Christianity was perfectly sound, healthy, full-charged with common sense, and had no decayed places in it. People who had an axe to grind, or people who, for any reason, wanted to get on the soft side of him, called him the Christian, a phrase whose delicate flattery was music to his ears, and whose capital T was such an enchanting and vivid object to him that he could see it when it fell out of a person's mouth even in the dark. Many who were fond of him stood on their consciences with both feet, and brazenly called him by that large title habitually because it was a pleasure to them to do anything that would please him, and with eager and cordial malice his extensive and diligently cultivated crop of enemies gilded it, beflowered it, expanded it to the only Christian. Of these two titles the latter had the wider currency, the enemy being greatly in the majority attended to that. Whatever the doctor believed, he believed with all his heart and would fight for it whenever he got the chance. And if the intervals between chances grew to be irksomely wide, he would invent ways of shortening them himself. He was severely conscientious, according to his rather independent lights, and whatever he took to be a duty he performed, no matter whether the judgment of the professional moralists agreed with his own or not. At sea, in his young days, he had used profanity freely but as soon as he was converted he made a rule which he rigidly stuck to ever afterward, never to use it except on the rarest occasions, 
and then only when duty commanded. He had been a hard drinker at sea, but after his conversion he became a firm and outspoken teetotaler, in order to be an example to the young, and from that time forth he seldom drank. Never, indeed, except when it seemed to him to be a duty, a condition which sometimes occurred a couple of times a year, but never as many as five times. Necessarily such a man is impressionable, impulsive, emotional. This one was, and had no gift at hiding his feelings, or if he had it, he took no trouble to exercise it. He carried his soul's prevailing weather in his face, and when he entered a room, the parasols or the umbrellas went up, figuratively speaking, according to the indications. When the soft light was in his eye, it meant approval, and delivered a benediction. When he came with a frown, he lowered the temperature ten degrees. He was a well-beloved man in the house of his friends, but sometimes a dreaded one. He had a deep affection for the Lester household, and its several members returned this feeling with interest. They mourned over his kind of Christianity, and he frankly scoffed at theirs. But both parties went on loving each other just the same. He was approaching the house, out of the distance. The ants and the culprit were moving toward the sick chamber. End of chapter 12